Volker Slondorf, in conversation with IST Festival co-founder Alfon Iseli. The two will dissect how the post-truth age and the digital revolution change modern cinema, its stories, and the filmmaking industry itself. Welcome, guys. Good afternoon. I'm sorry to say I'm not that well prepared as uh, previous speakers. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, first of all, we're very honored and we're very happy that you joined us uh, at this year's edition. And uh, Mr. Schlondorf is, as you might know, is one of the most important German filmmakers of the post-World War II era. Is if that, that was so, you wouldn't have to introduce me. <laughs> Uh, no, just to start and to warm things up, um, he's a highly... I'm going to throw you curves. <laughs> and uh, before we start, because uh, you're one of the pi pioneering uh, authors of the new German cinema, but I want to do a very quick intro how we get to the new German cinema, how it was born, because... Uh, in the 1920s and early 30s, uh, the German movie industry was one of the major industries in the world during the Weimar Republic. And it produced great filmmakers like Fritz Lang, Murnau, Pabst, Ernst Lubitsch. And unfortunately, this creative outburst ended in 1933 with the Nazis coming to power. And of course, the Third Reich used cinema as an effective tool of propaganda until 45. And after World War II, Germany was split into two, uh, the DDR and the uh, Bundesrepublik of Deutschland. And the cinema in the, in the post-World War II era was mostly Trümmer films, which were kind of like uh, the German version, which they were influenced from the neorealism cinema of Italy, almost. And, and but, but the defining... At, at what point may I interfere? <laughs> Whenever you want, please. <laughs> no, 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 finish your, finish your curve. <laughs> and, uh, but the defining genre was, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, was the Heimat film, which were simple moralistic tales of love and family stories set with gorgeous backdrops of the Alps of Bavaria, Austria, Switzerland, and it was critically not uh, observed back then. But now, looking back, it's culturally also uh, very significant because it represents a very peculiar time of Germany, the, the, the Wirtschaftswunderjahre, which you spent your youth in Germany, and can you tell us a bit about the social mood and the cultural zeitgeist of the Adenauer years? Uh, uh, yeah, I guess I tried to run away from it because it was very uh, oppressive and boring years, uh, the 50s in Germany. And in fact, uh, just to, uh, to, to add a few things to your uh, analysis, um, because it, somehow it, you know, 
we have the feeling with the digital age and post-truth and I, I'm not sure I know I understand exactly what it all means uh, but <laughs> I mean I read the newspaper so I, I, I hear the lingo. Um, it, it, it is not uh, intellectual categories I've been growing up with and I'm uh, too old to change now. Uh, but uh, uh, clearly there is a total change, whether whether in cinema or in civilization, with uh, let's say in the last ten years, and and I've lived at least uh, through one similar uh, period of that time, at least as far as cinema is concerned. That was the the years of the Nouvelle Vague in France, and which then we we uh, few of us uh, exported uh, into Germany. Um, as to the the kind of dominance or anyhow uh, uh, strength of the German cinema um, in in during the Weimar Republic, uh, that was mostly because it was still silent. <laughs> <laughs> there were no di and, dialogues. Uh, so uh, you could you could compete uh, uh, with American or French cinema because you didn't have to listen to German language. The moment uh, sound came in, the decline of the German cinema started because nobody wanted to listen to that language, <laughs> uh, and there was no dubbing in the in, in the first decade of, of filmmaking, uh, uh, and then came Goebbels, and that made it worse. So after the war, cinema. Uh, uh, was completely discredited because it uh, served as a as a propaganda instrument and because most of the talent uh, uh, was uh, emigrated or fleeing uh, to Hollywood. Uh, however, there was a, a, there was no reemergence of the German films uh, for quite a different reason. I mean, we were an occupied country, rightly so. Uh, uh, because we had started the war. So the Allies divided this market among themselves and introduced heavy dubbing, like in Italy. Uh, so uh, the, uh, the German market for many years was uh, number one for American films uh, besides the USA. And uh, the same was true. It was true in Italy, the two occupied uh, uh, countries. So the uh, people had enough movies to see, that the, and the German film industry only provided what you could not uh, get from the Allies, and that was these uh, these you know homely films set in the Alps with a beautiful girl in the yodel and yodeling and uh, along. Or, or else, you know, uh, kind of exotic films that made people forget about uh, about uh, the way the country uh, was destroyed and also forget about their guilt. Uh, so it was a very harmonizing uh, film industry that put people asleep or made them feel good in in a in a in a very in a very superficial way. And uh, and we grew up uh, in this in this atmosphere. My generation. I'm born in '39, so we were, you know, in the mid '50s. We were 15, 16 years old, 
and we couldn't stand it. I mean, this is where the where it was an unconscious revolt. It only came out in '68 for real, you know, so to speak. But culturally, with the students, but culturally, it was already there. You know, the the, the true cultural revolution was uh, in the early '60s. Uh, Bob Dylan. Rolling Stones, I mean, it started there, and, and it was in France, the Nouvelle Vague. And, uh, and I was in, uh, so, um, I went to France when I was 16 years old, uh, first for, for three months to learn a little French, and I liked it so much better there than it at home, that I did stay for the next uh, 10 years. Um, and, and was an assistant to, to Louis Malle, to Melville, to Alain René. So I really lived in the moment of the Nouvelle Vague from within, you know, as, as, uh, as, as one of the boys there. And it was a, a similar evolution in France. It was a revolt against the established film industry, La Qualité Française, uh, uh, you know, historical films, uh, Rififi films, uh, films that did not really deal with social and political issues and, and who aesthetically were kind of an imitation of, of Hollywood. And that's where when Godard and Chabrol and, uh, and, and Louis Malle and Truffaut, you know, broke uh, that mold and, uh, and introduced uh, not different stories. Actually, they made, I would say, almost films without stories. And that's what's happening now again. That's why it may be interesting. Anyhow, it was more, it was not that they told different stories, they told stories in a different way. It was really about, about the style, as, what, as, as you said, Where's Katerina? Anyhow, uh, each uh, technology introduces a new art uh, uh, form, and, and it was the moment uh, where you could build all of a sudden a camera that was handhold, that didn't need to be on a tripod, it didn't have to have all this heavy equipment, and the at the same time you could take live sound with a little... Nagra, it was called a little recording machine. So these two things, the, the portable camera and, and, the, and the live sound, uh, made possible uh, a film like Breathless. Uh, that is really the, the example of it, which is you shoot in the street. Uh, you shoot with actors, but you shoot with a different kind of actors, not with actors who come from the theater, but actors who come from the streets, so to speak. Uh, and uh, 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 these means conducted, of course, led to uh, to a completely different uh, different type of stories as well, uh, where the screenplay all of a sudden was not so important anymore. At least it seemed that way in the beginning, uh, because you could uh, almost improvise, like like Godard, he improvised dialogues on the set or scribbled on paper or gave it to them or even put in a little uh, uh, hearing aid in the ears and then whispered the dialogues as the actors went along. So uh, it was a complete uh, break uh, from what had happened before. And uh, so when 
I uh, was about to make my first film. I was 25 and eager, of course, now to prove everybody I had to do everything before you were 30 because you don't try. The saying was, don't trust anybody over 30. So we thought if we have, uh, 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 if we start at 25, we have five years to do honest work. After that, we would be creepy and shitty like everybody else too. Uh, so it, 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 was, it was really incredible uh, that all of the Nouvelle Vague filmmakers were about 25 when they made their first film. And, and they, uh, uh, so I wanted to be mine. I was pretty much assimilated by then. And, uh, and my friends told me, no, 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 you, you don't make a French movie. You go to Germany and make a German film and show us how it is there. <laughs> uh, so this was practically the beginning of the so-called young German cinema or new German cinema. I came to Munich and the first guy uh, I met was Alexander Kluge, a little older than me. Uh, he he gave, rented me a room. And uh, uh, then I met another young guy, Werner Herzog, who was a couple of years younger than me, had just done uh, his first short film. And I told him about the film I wanted to make, Young Turles. And he indicated, oh, he said, you, you can only shoot it in one place on the world. I'm just coming from there. He's, that's the way he is, you know. And that is the one and only place where you can make your movie. And actually, I went there in Austria and made the movie. Uh, so uh, since that day, and it must have been in 1965, uh, uh, to this day, uh, we are best friends. Uh, and then two, other, two or three others came with it who had never been to France, but who shared uh, this, the same feeling, the same necessity uh, that uh, our life should be the subject of our films. Until then, what we had seen on, in German cinema was melodramas or uh, detective stories that were set in Soho or in Hong Kong or wherever. German reality did not exist in German films. And this is what we wanted to introduce, our, our reality. And then a couple of years later, Fassbinder came and um, and, and Wim Wenders, uh, Wim Wenders uh, yet another uh, couple of years later. And, and so all of a sudden, without having a, uh, formulated uh, really much of a program, all of a sudden, it's one of these accidents in history, I'd say, where all of a sudden a group of people are like-minded and do the same thing. And it had been the same because I lived this twice, so to speak, once as an assistant in France, uh, where in 1960 I was uh, working on Zazie and the Metro with Louis Mal, the same year in the fall and last year in Marienbad. And uh, uh, so I lived it twice. I lived it once as an assistant. That was much more fun because then you don't have any responsibility and all the privileges. <laughs> and, uh, and the second time uh, then uh, with, with the German filmmaking. Um, I, I'm sorry to m mention or talk about these films. Uh, probably none, you weren't even born then and none of you has seen them. And it's, uh, it's history, yeah. And how were those films initially received? Uh, was they critically successful? Uh, well, they were, they, they were successful with the audience um, because uh, 
because that was our generation and, and they recognized immediately, uh, this is our reality, this is us, you know. So it was, at first, it was, uh, it was like the Nouvelle Vague, you know, was, was extremely popular, like from one day to the next, all of a sudden, it made, it, it made other films look real old. <laughs> and, 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 and we were, uh, we were the generation who was, uh, uh, this, this was a real break, and, and then of course we say 60s, you see this was 66, my first film came out at the Cannes Festival and, and, and was, uh, was acclaimed, got also critical, Fibresi Award and so. Um, but uh, two years later was 68, so it was also uh, the, 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 the student uh, revolt, I mean we were not students anymore, but we felt uh, the same. I mean, we were we were gen one generation, and we became very quickly very politicized. politicized. Too. Is a, it was inevitable to not to be. Well, uh, we had been to to do those films. Uh, we had to fight the establishment of the film industry, yeah. uh, and uh, and that led to political fight. We were looking for allies, you know, in in the political groups. But anyhow, I'm I'm a hundred percent political, or used to be a hundred percent political animal, uh, 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 which which was due to to growing up in France. It was the the end of the Vietnam War, the beginning uh, of the Algerian War. Uh, there were all these colonial wars, and they were not fought in the colonies. They were actually fought in Paris, where I was living. So when um, you know, one morning you have a a hundred Algerian uh, uh, immigrants murdered by the police and flowing down the Seine River, you cannot help but getting politicized. And of course, it also spread to Germany with the uh, uh, RAF, the Rote Armee Fraktion. And, uh, but before we get there, one of, we, we talked about a very uh, particular film, which I had the chance to see last week, was Baal. And it was impossible to uh, to find to watch the film for a while, and it was a stylistic for forty years. For forty <laughs> years, it's can you tell it's us? A, it's a it's a it was Bertolt Brecht's first theater play, not much of theater, a play, uh, a crazy a crazy play. He, yeah, he wrote when he was twenty, uh, and about. Uh, a vagabond poet, uh, kind of a, like a Villon, a François Villon, uh, and uh, which he later reworked to make it more politically correct in the sense of, of the communist he had become, but the play itself was complete anarchy. And uh, when, when I shot it in, in 68, 69, uh, when looking for an actor, I first uh, came to Rome to meet uh, uh, um, Danny Cohn-Bendit, who was in Rome with Godard. We had lunch not far from here uh, to do a, a Godard picture, Van Dest, and I tried to talk him into playing this part uh, in the film. Uh, but soon realized, being with him, that he was uh, too intellectual for it. And, and, and I saw in, in Munich in a, in a small theater, actually, in the 
background of a brewery, in a back room of a brewery, Rainer Werner Fassbinder. And I went to see him and I told him about it. And of course, he was all excited immediately. Uh, I think he would have accepted every part. But this part, it turned out, it was, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, should I say, it's uh, like a, a premonition, a self-fulfilling. Uh, he was 22 or 23 then. Um, and before uh, start shooting, I mean, we took a little insurance. Um, and uh, uh, as we always do when you make a film, so you have to go to a doctor to have a medical visit, and the doctor told him, uh, you can't go on living like that. You know, you, you have a weak heart, you're 23 years old, your, your body is in very poor condition. Uh, uh, you better watch it. And when he came out, uh, <laughs> he concluded the opposite. He has to work harder and faster because he may not live long. <laughs> And, uh, and which is very much the character of this anarchist uh, he was playing. And so when you see the, 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 the movie today, it, you, you have the feeling uh, that uh, you, you, see, you see the curb of his own life, you know, burning the candle by both uh, ends. Uh, but uh, this was not at all in the sense of Brecht's widow, Helene Weigel, uh, who, who saw the film and uh, withdrew her uh, license or the rights to, to the play, so the film could not be screened for 40 years. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's still pretty fresh now. Because uh, for her, Brecht was not an anarchist, but was a didactic communist, you know, this the typical East German, uh, what he had become in old age. So we should have shown him before he was 30 years old. But, Bre <laughs> but Brecht had a huge impact on the cinema back then in Germany. Right. Not so much on the cinema, on, on, on intellectuals in general. On the theater, of course. Of course. I mean, we were all somehow, we, we pretended to be Brechtian, um, but everybody had his own interpretation what it was, uh, it's, it, uh, especially with the acting style. Uh, like, he, uh, his acting style uh, was, so to speak, the opposite of the American, of the Stanislavski, of the actor studio style. Uh, uh, he he insisted that you see that the actor is actually acting. You are, like you are not supposed to 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 as if you had with a hidden camera uh, recorded life itself. Uh, but it was important to see this is a representation and this is an actor who is actually acting. So uh, uh, it's. Um, it's an interesting idea. It doesn't work in practice, <laughs> not in movies, anyhow. Uh, we're we're simply. Uh, it, it seems stiff. You can do it. Uh, we we tried to find other ways. At the beginning, I did it, and still, when I see uh, some of my first films, I I find the uh, this this acting, which is presented as acting, uh, is somewhat stiff and lifeless. 
and I don't, and Brecht wanted it to, uh, to be enlightening for the audience. Uh, and uh, uh, the, the same as the stories should be, should be exemplary in the sense that the people on screen in the stories did the wrong thing so that the audience would understand what the right thing is. So it's almost <laughs> it's it was very, the post very didactic. It's almost post-truth, Brecht's ideas. Uh, I, I, th I think, I'm, I'm not sure about that, uh, but, but maybe, because I don't know what post-truth is. You see, I'm stuck in, uh, <laughs> I still believe in truth. <laughs> yeah. And also, uh, there was another important person of the new German cinema in uh, Baal, Margaret von Trotta, which uh, you also later get married and you collaborated on uh, future films in the 70s, especially in the, the Lost Honor of Katharina Bloom, uh, which is a very political film and in a very political time because the 60s started as a student movement and in the 70s it turned into a violent, violent struggle against uh, the state and the system. And well, in the media. Uh, in, in reality, uh, as Heinrich Böll put it, uh, they were at the beginning, the, these anarchy or these violent group about Meinhof, they were eight, and he wrote an article, how come 80 million can be scared by eight people? Yeah. Uh, to the point that the, basically the police was almost militarized and it became a total surveillance uh, state. Uh, uh, yeah, and we 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 were uh, Margarete and von Trotta and I uh, kind of almost took sides. Uh, we were called the sympathizers. Yeah, it's a good word. We had sympathy for the devil, uh, and uh, but Margarete was not that much political. She was more uh, feminist and. She tried to turn me into one as well. Uh, it worked for a while. Um, and uh, I, I'm certainly, I've never been the same again afterwards. Uh, 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 and uh, because that's one thing with the Nouvelle Vague and so in growing up in France, we were pretty proud to be male <laughs> and, and behaved accordingly. So that is something that was completely broken uh, through Margareta and the whole movement uh, uh, of, of uh, women filmmakers uh, who really changed completely uh, uh, our or my attitude at least. Werner Herzog, I'm not so sure. <laughs> uh, um, yeah. Uh, what what was uh, I, I was listening to to some of the panels and very enlightening about uh, about the, the post truth and what is the difference and my feeling is that the uh, at least in filmmaking uh, uh, the the difference is that the old cinema believed in telling stories. And by the way, in that sense, I'm, I'm still old cinema. Uh, because I grew up in the, I mean, yeah, literally three years in the Cinematheque in Paris and all these silent movies you're talking about. Uh, uh, th those were my, my role models. Uh, 
which is pretty much when I uh, did the death of a salesman with uh, Dustin Hoffman and Arthur Miller were the two producers. Uh, it was called DH Pro DM Production. No, Hoffman Miller, HM Production. Uh, uh, the, uh, the play starts with uh, this salesman coming on stage, uh, schlepping two suitcases, putting them down, and, uh, and his wife wakes up upstairs. It's in the middle of the night. Uh, he was not supposed to come home. And his wife calls from upstairs, Willie, what happened? And Arthur Miller always said, this is the perfect beginning of a play or of a movie. What happened? <laughs> uh, and now we're going to be told a story. Uh, and, and that basically, I, I think something happened and that's what we're telling. This was always uh, the, the filmmaking until, until let's say, uh, the, uh, the, the TV series now, the uh, streaming, streaming series started, uh, which where all of a sudden you did not have this curb anymore, uh, you know, an exposition and, and a climax and, and a conflict and growing and subplots and what, and finally resuming in an ending. The, uh, the only one who already in the, in the, in the time of, of the Nouvelle Vague in Paris uh, questioned that was uh, Jean-Luc Godard when he said, of course, every movie has to have a beginning, a middle, and an end, but not necessarily in that order. And, and you, I think you could say that from TV series now. They, they, they don't go for this long curb, almost epic curb. They go from five minutes to five or seven minutes to seven minutes. And, uh, and you don't necessarily have to know what happened before, uh, nor really to wonder where is it all going to end as long as you have every seven minutes this kind of a cliffhanger that makes you, you know, like a drug so that you want to take the next portion, the next one. So, of course, uh, in that way you, you tell completely different stories and you tell them in a completely different way and the audience receives them in a very different way. It is not anymore like you go to a theater or a concert or like we used to go to a movie house, you know, prepare, oh, next Thursday we're going to see uh, this and this movie at eight o'clock and you go cross town and you go somewhere and you queue to get in and you receive it sitting religiously in the dark and then you come out and then they start to debate about the movie you've just seen for hours and hours. Uh, this 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 uh, this experience just doesn't exist anymore. Nobody does this anymore. I have a 26-year-old daughter. She receives films in a completely different way, and uh, and therefore uh, the films become completely different. And where do you think uh, the the future of cinema is going to head? Because it's getting very difficult for young filmmakers today. Uh, to make films like Young Turles or Baal, it's... it's yeah, but they, I don't think they try anymore. Nobody would try to do the Tin Drum today or, or, or what other uh, films of mine. Uh, uh, th th this was still the, you know, 
I'm, I'm still, if it was literature, I'm still living in the 19th century. I'm still living with novels, you know, <laughs> and with the universe of a novel, uh, or occasionally with the play. Uh, uh, but, uh, but it's not only that my daughter wouldn't watch these movies, but they wouldn't even read those novels. That, so it's not only cinema is changing, the whole perception of, I mean, we are still, why do we go to a show? Of course, it's to be diverted, to be entertained, uh, to laugh, maybe to cry, uh, mostly to watch how other people live. It's always the question, how do others do it? That's what you want to know when you're an adolescent. And if you're somewhat awake in life, even at age 50 or 60 or 70, you are still intrigued to know how do others do it. Uh, it's, uh, uh, and uh, So you can get this information how others do it, even if it's not a story that's being told, even if it's not a 90 minutes movie, uh, they, they grab it in a different way. I'm, I'm, I'm sure my, my, my daughter has as many experiences uh, as I, uh, I had it at her age uh, from art, from culture, but in a completely different way. And would you ever consider... And, and, and we just imagine 100 years or 150 years ago, there was no cinema, <laughs> and people also had, you know, were crying and laughing and doing things. It, it's just the, 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 the art form changes, but our need for, uh, our need to know how to live and how others live uh, is the same always, since, since uh, the first man drew uh, an elephant on the wall of a cave. <laughs> why, why did he do that? You know, he wanted to protect himself from the, from the himself, elephant, maybe. maybe the representation, you know. Once he was on the wall, the, the elephant was less dangerous, or maybe it gave him the strength. Uh, um, what was what was the role of art in the cave? <laughs> Communication. Yeah, absolutely. So it's there is we apprehend the world differently, uh, but the the I'm not sure that the human art changes through technology. I'm not sure whether human nature changes uh, through technology, even though. With a question mark, because maybe the digital, maybe the artificial intelligence, maybe after all, it may change human nature. But do you? Th I, I don't. I'm not <laughs> going to live to see it, but <laughs> and I don't want to. For me, human nature is fine just as it is, <laughs> ambiguous and uh, full of surprises. But do you think really, uh, talking about artificial intelligence, do you really think a computer can mimic human emotions and desires? Uh, it's uh, very mimic, simplifying. Mimic maybe, but he can't feel it. He and, can't and, feel and, it. And, and uh, in my opinion, if he can't feel it, uh, then it, it cannot move us either. Uh, there is a, a very strange thing, I mean, in. Uh, Henry James, the, the, the novelist, said, you know, any good novel needs at the start uh, life lived. 
a small or a large portion, but life lived. An experience the writer actually had while living. And from there, you can, you can change it, you can do this or that, but you, you need you need live lived at the, at the, and that goes for the same for a painting, it goes for music, it goes for all art. So therefore, I think a computer, <laughs> since he cannot, uh, cannot have life lived, uh, he, he, can, he, can, he can make a lot of imitations, but it doesn't work. Uh, I saw the tragic example of a very talented young Polish painter um, whose, whose work I started to collect, Roman Lipsky, lives in Berlin. And he got all of a sudden into the computer world and with some computer people. And for five years now, he's painting with a computer and it's completely lifeless uh, stuff. Uh, nobody, uh, you know, it's not impressive at all. You can use it for illustration in magazines or so. Uh, and, 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 and I'm very sorry for him uh, because his paintings don't sell anymore. But I'm so also very sorry for me because my old, his old paintings, which are really good, are worthless too. <laughs> Would you ever consider to direct any type of content for these streaming sites, for oh, these sure, new sure. or a TV series? Uh, yeah, uh, look, look, I'm I'm making movies and I continue to do so. Except, except that right now I'm working on a documentary, uh, which will be a propaganda uh, film to 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 regreen the world. Uh, it's called The Forest Maker and it's about an agronomist who is actually making forests grow in the Sahel zone and in Asia without planting a single tree. So it's uh, fantastic going to the roots that are still underneath. But other than that, uh, I, I the only reason I do films, I, lo I love to be on the set, I love to be with the crew, and I like to work with actors more than anything. And all my friends, almost all my friends are actors and a few writers. <laughs> uh, it, because it's, it's the kind of people I like to be with. And uh, uh, so whether it's for a streaming or for a movie, uh, a singular movie, uh, I don't really care. And is it your next documentary? Is it for a s streaming site or theatrical release? Um, I wish I knew. <laughs> no, I was just four weeks in Africa with, with this agronomist, uh, uh, Tony Rinaldo, who received an alternative Nobel Award in Stockholm in, in December. That's how I became aware of him. And I followed him to Ghana, Mali, and Niger, and shot for four weeks with him. And then I put it together, and then I went to, in a trailer. And uh, I'm coming to your question. And then I uh, bought a, a flight to, to, to Los Angeles, and my first uh, uh, interview was with Amazon, <laughs> followed by Netflix, followed by Apple. And I pitched my project. So far, nobody picked it up. <laughs> so you see, I'm not scared by them. I, I want to seduce them. I want to talk them <laughs> into producing. 
Well, you can even... They, they don't... It's simply... No, no, they, they are all fascinated, but you see, that this is interesting. And uh, by the subject and the best pitch they ever had, blah, blah, blah. But um, uh, documentaries are quite popular, but not popular enough to subscribe a streaming service. That is only through the fiction series, and that's why we put money only into fiction series. And uh, since we have, on a, you know, kind of a monopoly, a very strong position, every filmmaker who has a documentary comes to us anyhow, so we don't have to finance those films. We just take them into distribution, you know, in between the fiction series. <laughs> Maybe uh, we have running out of time, but maybe a few questions from the audience. Uh, please. Hello, good afternoon. Uh, in response to the statement about you know uh, young filmmakers, uh, the films that young filmmakers are making right now, I think uh, uh, I would like to tell that uh, we are limiting our lens in how we are observing the works of young filmmakers right now. Because if we are going to discover or go to regional uh, regional territories in Indonesia, in the Philippines in Brazil, in South America. I think the, uh, the movement that is actually um, uh, rising right now are from these regions. And um, I think uh, as a young filmmaker, the thing that is uh, um, uh, lacking right now to young filmmakers is the trust and loss of creativity, uh, imagination, and uh, trust to the vision of uh, to fellow filmmakers. Uh, my question is that how uh, where uh, how, uh, where do you think this uh, loss of imagination, this uh, of creativity, is coming from at this uh, at this particular time? Because right now we are living in a very historical moment. But then, if you see uh, the films of uh, filmmakers who are always featured in film festival uh, or who are given opportunities to showcase their films, it's always the same story. And yeah, that's my question. Where is this uh, loss of, uh, uh, this laziness, this loss of imagination coming from? <laughs> that's yeah. a million dollar question. Uh, uh, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, we, we, we all uh, have this feeling but I think it's not so much a loss of imagination. I'm speaking now of European and partly American filmmaking. Um, there is a lack of urgency. Uh, you, you feel the movies, okay, it's fine, not so bad, and so, but it's not really necessary. It, 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 you, you, you don't feel the, the, the urgency uh, within the filmmaker to tell this story or to show this aspect of life. And probably, I'm not sure whether in series uh, you, you, can ever, uh, you can ever attain this. Whereas in other continents and in other countries, this urgency still exists. And uh, through the digital cameras and the digital filmmaking, uh, it is possible at a very low cost uh, to make those films. And that's why they pop up uh, all of a sudden from everywhere uh, at the festivals for, 
for now. They they don't get into the general to the towards the general audience. That is uh, the problem of distribution. Today it's very easy and uh, to in a sense to make a film even with your with your cell phone, um, but it is very very hard to find distribution, and uh, or or it goes through the internet. But it is not anymore what we were used to. Um, that uh, a worldwide audience uh, in the same year uh, see the, the same um, films, well, to contradict, of course, the roller coaster movies, the Game of Thrones and whatnot, they, uh, they all see them, but what we call the art house film doesn't exist anymore, and the distribution doesn't exist anymore. And nobody goes to the art houses anymore except, uh, uh, I mean, it's... Uh, uh, an, an, an older generation and as they are dying out and there is no younger generation going into the art house you can well see uh, where this will end within the next 10 years okay. that's not doomsday people see it. that does not mean that people don't see films anymore more films are seen today than ever I'm sure in, in, the, in the history of films because they, uh, they are everywhere. They are either in clips or in long, they're on YouTube, they're on streaming, they're here and there. Uh, I mean, it's not films, it's an audiovisual stream we are living in without beginning and end. Uh, and therefore, storytelling is not so important anymore. Thank you so much. We're uh, running out of time, Volker Landorf. to know uh, how you put the soundtrack together on the tin drum because I have it on vinyl and I love this record. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, the soundtrack of the tin drum. The soundtrack of the Sound, soundtrack. Oh, the, the soundtrack. The, on vinyl. This accordion music. Oh, yes. It, it's, uh, no, no it's, it's not an accordion. It's, uh, on, uh, nobody can say what it is. Actually, it's called a fujara. Uh, it's a... It's a uh, Shepherd's instrument from the Balkans, a bit like the Alpenhorn or so, you know, like, like a kind of a, a wooden instrument, uh, uh, like a very large flute or how do you say, and it does this, it's not even like music, it's something very strange. And Maurice Jarre, the composer, had heard it in London in some ethnic concert and... Uh, found the people to do it.